0: Thanks for listening to this audio podcast from Crossgate Church in Hot Springs, Arkansas. We invite you to visit us at crossgate.org. It is our hope that you will hear from God and draw closer to Him through this service. My name is Joshua Tompkins. I'm your next generation pastor. Uh, Phil, as he said in the video, is uh, out and that's mostly because his gators lost and so he couldn't, couldn't be here today. Uh, Two quick announcements as we're setting up. One is membership. Thank you, Randy. Uh, Membership Matters is right around the corner. So if you've been joining us for the last few weeks or months um, and you're interested in becoming a member here at Crossgate, we encourage you to do so and taking part in our Membership Matters class. If you want more information about that, you can see us in Next Steps immediately after the service. Uh, We would love to get in touch with you. The second is pretty simple. We have our physical copies of notes that you should have received at the door, uh, but there is also a digital version as well. So if you scan that QR code, many of you are doing so right now, you can scan that and that'll bring you to a page and you can actually fill that out online. Well, as I said, uh, today we're talking about the cross. Over the last several weeks, we have been in a series entitled, We Believe, where we're doing this deep doctrinal dive into our theology and our faith. And so last week, we talked about how Jesus lived, that he is both fully human and fully God. Um, And this is the core, or this is a core to our belief. And so today, we're focusing on the second reality of christ and that his his work of the cross that jesus died he lived he died and the next week we're going to see he rose again so today we focus on the cross It's the most famous symbol in all of history. The early church father, Tertullian, tells us that the early practice of believers was making the sign of the cross over their bodies with their hand and adorning their necks and homes with crosses to celebrate the brutal death of Jesus. In in doing so, the early Christians turned a symbol of terror and intimidation into a symbol of salvation and hope that we have today. The famous pastor Charles Spurgeon said, in Whatever subjects I may call to preach, I feel it be a duty which I dare not neglect to be continually going back to the doctrine of the cross, the fundamental truth of justification by faith which is in Christ Jesus. This topic is essential to the life of the human soul. And we especially see this in 1 Peter chapter 2. Verses 24 through 25, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. It was by his wounds you have been healed, for you were all like sheep going astray, but you have now been returned to the shepherd, the overseer of your souls. Today, we focus upon the doctrine of the cross, And I hope to show you today the necessity of the cross, the horror of the cross, the effect of the cross, and ultimately, the very heart of the cross that we understand today. And we're going to have to fly through this, so I hope you got those notes ready, because we're going to move fast. So the first point is this, we need to understand the necessity of the cross, because I think too often in our culture, we have fully missed this, and we forget the reason why, the necessity why. Of the cross. We know that we have all sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3:23. This is the doctrine of sin essentially, and that we deceive ourselves if we say we have no sin. In Isaiah, we, we know because of sin that all our good works are like filthy rags, and because our sin, we are separated from God. We know that sin, sin stems from our inability to faithfully follow God's law according to James. And Jeremiah tells us our hearts are utterly corrupted by it. We are easily persuaded by it. And because of it, in Ephesians, we are dead in our trespasses and sin. See, disobeying the law is serious. Not because the law has some inherent value or dignity that must be preserved, but but because disobeying it is actually an attack on the very nature of who God is, on the very nature of God himself. The Bible takes sin seriously because it takes mankind seriously in its sin. Therefore, legalism, the attitude that the law is to be obeyed for its own sake, is is unacceptable. Rather, the law is to be understood as a means of relating to a personal God. In his book, The Atonement, R.W. Dale says it, he puts it this way, God's connection with the law is not a relation of subjection, but rather identity. In God, the law is alive. It reigns on his throne, sways his scepter, is crowned with his glory. For the law is the expression of his own moral being, and his moral being is always self-consistent. We have to stop viewing the law as a set of rules and understand that the law is a representation of God himself. And the violation, therefore, of the law, whether by transgression or are failing to fulfill it, carries the serious consequence of punishment and death. That where there is sin, there is consequence. Adam and Eve were told in the day that they ate of the fruit of the tree, they would surely die. The Lord told Ezekiel that the one who sins is the one who will die, in Ezekiel 18. According to Paul, the wages of sin is death, and whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction, in Galatians 6. So we see there's this definite link between sin and punishment. And see, we, we understand this, we relate to this. If you're a parent, you understand the relationship between a rule and a punishment, a, a consequence. If you're an employer to an employee... You understand that there is consequence to people's actions. And so what happens is, especially like if you're a parent and you have a kid and you set a series of rules, and as the father, as the mother, you're supposed to enforce those rules to better raise your child. But what you will experience in the life of maybe not a teenager, but like a younger kid is maybe like a little bit of fear when they've made a mistake. Like there, there's guilt and shame, there's fear, there's all of this kind of mixed into this reality that they have done wrong. And if we are inwardly fearful of these earthly punishments, then we could hardly imagine the outpouring of wrath from an almighty God. And so, where there's guilt and where there's shame, there's sin. And what happens is God's holiness exposes this sin. This is what we see in the book of John. And his wrath opposes it. So sin cannot approach God and God cannot tolerate sin. His anger, unlike our anger, is absolutely pure. So God's justice requires that sin be punished. And he cannot only focus on one attribute of God, which is so cliche in our culture today well God is love yes but God is also just God is also holy God is also righteous if there is no wrath then there is no justice and there is no sin the downward spiral continues to go down sin must be punished and so we see foreshadowing of God redeeming and saving his people in the Old Testament We see this in the book of Exodus. God hears the cries of his people. He points Moses and Aaron to speak to Pharaoh on his behalf. Pharaoh does not acknowledge God, so God sends plagues to show his power and punish Pharaoh along with Egypt for all of their sins on his people. And the last plague, many of you know, is the death plague where the firstborn of every household would die. But here they're offered a choice. See, Egypt was cursed, death was literally coming to your doorstep. And God told those that were faithful to him to sacrifice a lamb, to sprinkle its blood on their doorpost, and in doing so, death would see the blood and pass over their house. If one chose to not apply the blood, then the plague would enter with the curse of death. And hear me, there was nothing magical about the blood here. It was their faith in God through a sacrifice he provided to redeem them similar today it's it's the blood that redeems us and in the old testament like the blood of the lamb was too precious not to be applied to my own doorstep it must be applied to me this is why the prototype for redemption it's not the pagan slave market that we would think about today, but it's, it's here, it's in the Bible, it's the Exodus. There God liberated his people, but in no way paid the debt to Pharaoh. He just simply crushed him as he crushes sin, as he crushes death. So there is a necessity of the cross because sin exists and a penalty is there. So now let's talk about the horror of the cross. There is a horror In the cross that I think we lose today because it's become so commonplace in our lives. So let's talk very briefly about the blame and the brutality. We certainly see in Scripture that the blame passes of who do we blame for the death of Jesus? Do we blame Pilate, who could have released Jesus because he knew he was innocent? Do we blame the Pharisees, for their religious persecution and their false statements against who Christ is? Do we blame the disciples for not standing up and abandoning him? Do we blame the crowd that was fickled and called for his execution when they could have swayed Pilate himself? The reality is, as we see in Scripture, that it's all of these plus more. It is our sin that held him there. It is for sin that he died for us. And so I believe the gospel writers write their particular stories to show us ourselves in the roles of these people. Like Pilate, we too easily pass the blame of sin in our lives. Like the Pharisees, we put forward an image of self-righteousness and we don't need the blood in our lives. Like the disciples, we are all too easy to abandon him when there is trial, when there is trouble, and like the crowd, we are far too fickle and will follow cultural trends. It was our sin that held him there. In the 6th century, the Persians commonly practiced crucifixion, uh, especially King Darius I, who crucified 3,000 Babylonians in 51 BC. Later, Alexander the Great would crucify 2,000 people in Tyre. Alexander was the master of torture and crucifixion was his primary tool. In 71, the former gladiator Spartacus And 120,000 prisoners fell in the battle to the Romans, which led to 6,000 men being crucified shoulder to shoulder along the main road, which would have stretched for 120 miles. The Romans perfected crucifixion. They learned how to prolong the pain and the agony of it. In fact, Jesus, well before the cross, had probably seen crucifixion as a child since there was a Jewish uprising against Rome that resulted in over 2,000 Jews being crucified during the death of Herod. Our word excruciating comes literally from the crucifixion because it means literally from the cross. Without going into the gory details, the pain of crucifixion is part of the fact that it is a prolonged and agonizing death primarily from asphyxiation crucified people would hang on the cross from anywhere to three to four hours or as long as nine days passing in and out of consciousness as their lungs struggle to breathe while laboring under the weight of their own body. All of this was not brutal but it was shameful and humiliating as these were open in public settings where the crucified man would be nailed naked to the cross. Imagine walking into a mall, and on the mall was a naked man hating their beaten, bloodied, bruised. The Jewish historian Josephus called crucifixion the most wretched of deaths. The ancient Roman philosopher Cicero asked the decent Roman citizens not to even speak of the cross because it was too disgraceful a subject for the ears of decent people. The Jewish people also considered a crucifixion a terrible death in Deuteronomy. It says, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. And yet Jesus the carpenter Who had driven many nails into wood with his own hands would now feel nails driven through his own flesh. There's the physical horror and pain of the cross, but there's also the psychological pain of the cross. Like we know something of anguish, like we feel when we know we have sinned, like we understand to a degree that we have sinned, the weight of guilt becomes heavy on our hearts, and there's a bitter sense of separation from all that is right, like a relationship is torn, trust is broken, there's fear now entered into the relationship, and we understand this on a small human level, and so we have to take into account that Jesus is perfectly holy, and he hated sin with his entire being, and and. Though the evil of sin contra- con- sorry, contradicted everything in his character, yet in obedience to the Father and out of love for us, Jesus took on himself the sins of all those who would be saved. So all that he hated most deeply was poured out on him fully. Look how Isaiah 53, 3-6 through 6 put it. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew that sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised. He didn't value him. He himself bore our sickness. He carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted but he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities, punished for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went away astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. This is a core doctrine that in your notes, uh, we reference this as penal substitutionary atonement. There's a winning Scrabble combination for all of you. Penal substitutionary atonement. Pastor Josh, what does that mean? Well, let's take it down word by word. Penal is a legal term referencing penalty, that God took the penalty of our sins. We see this in Isaiah 53, 3 through 4, that it was the penalty due to us that he took. But he didn't just take our penalty, he was also our substitution. He took our place on the cross. The Bible tells us that our sins were laid upon Christ, that he bore our iniquity, that he was made sin for us. In fact, when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Paul said, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. And Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us in Galatians 3. Look at Hebrews 10, 12 through 18. It says, but this man, offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool for By one offering, he was perfected forever those who are sanctified. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For after he says, this is the covenant, I will make with them. After those days, the Lord says, I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. And I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering of sin. See, the common idea in all these passages is that Jesus bore our sins. They were laid on him, are transferred from us to him. He bore our penalty, became our substitute, but then we see this word atonement, which will go in depth a little bit more, but ideally it's this, it's that he covered us with his innocent blood. A lot of mornings, my son, Jack, will wake up earlier than me, and now that it's cold, he'll go out to the couch and he'll throw a blanket over him, and I'll, I'll come out, and all I see is a blanket. I don't know he's there, and so it's become a morning routine, As I'll come out, and then he'll pop out of the blanket and be like, I got you. And I'm like, no, eh, he really didn't. But when I walk out there, all I see is what? I don't see him. I see the blanket. And in a sense, Jesus' blood covers us to where God does not see our sin, but instead he sees the righteousness, the innocence of his son. Hebrews nine eleven through 15 says, But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come in. And the greater and more perfect tabernacle, no, no, not- "'Tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of his creation. "'He entered the most holy place for all time, "'not by the blood of goats and calves, but by what? "'His own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. "'For if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of young cows "'sprinkling those who are defiled "'sanctified for the purification of flesh, "'how much more would the blood of Christ, "'who through the eternal Spirit "'offered himself without blemish to God.'" cleanse our consciousness from dead works so that we might serve the living god therefore he is the mediator of the new covenants that those who are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant this like this term is the heart of the gospel message and the gospel message is the primary message of the entire Bible. So to attack the idea of penal substitutionary atonement is to attack the the central message of the entire Bible, to attack the reality that God paid our penalty, sacrificed for our sin, and atoned for our sin, is to attack the gospel. If you are part of Christ's own body, your sin invokes his deepest heart, his compassion, and his pity, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, uh, Dane Ortlund puts it this way. He takes part with you. That is, he is on your side. He sides with you against your sin, not because of your sin. That he's for you. Like, do we get this? This love that he has for you. He cares so little about a trinket around your neck or a pallet wood decoration in your kitchen. Then he cares more about what is in your heart, that he's treasured in your heart. That you, in all humility, realize the compassion and mercy and love that he has for you that came at such a terrible cost. And so, because of that, I want to hate my sins more than I hate the sins of others who sin differently than I do. It calls me the cross, first and foremost, it draws me. To repentance, to turn from all that I am to all that He is. Because He paid my ransom. Psalm 49, 7 3, 8. Yet these, these, these works cannot redeem a person or pay his ransom to God, since the price of redeeming him is too costly. Mark ten, 45: for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as what? A ransom for many. 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6, I told you we'd be moving fast. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as what? A ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. There's a term for this in the Bible. It's another big scrabble word. It's called propitiation. That God is our propitiation, that Christ is our propitiation. This, is, this word summarizes more than 600 related words and events that explain it. Something, and this word means like it's something that appeases an offended power, especially a sacrificial offering to God. This is the only English word that carries the idea of pacifying wrath by taking care of the penalty for the offense that caused the wrath. And some of your translations don't even use this word. The NIV, for instance, will typically say a sacrifice of atonement. The NLT will say a sacrifice for sin. In many places, like uh, Romans two twenty-three through 25, the ESV and others still use this actual word, which occurs in four primary sources, but I want to read you this one, Romans three twenty-three through 25. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. blood. Blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. We see this again in Hebrews 2 and 1 John 2 and John 4. Their sins were propitiated and diverted to Jesus. Jesus did not, Jesus did this not by demanding our blood, but by rather giving of his own. It's the horror of the cross. Our sin. But now let's talk about the effect of the cross. In John 19 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Then, bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. And at this moment, the atonement for sin was made, and the holiness and righteousness, justice, and wrath of God were satisfied in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And even to assure that he was dead because Jesus did die, a Roman soldier ran a spear through his side which punctured his heart sac and water and blood flowed from his side. And this shows that Jesus died probably from a heart attack, no doubt from the stress, a traumatized body, devastated muscles, severe blood loss and so the sac around his heart filled with water until the pressure caused Jesus's heart to stop beating as one church historian wrote Jesus probably died both a literal and metaphorical broken heart and then darkness covered the land the veil in the temple was torn in two then he was laid in the tomb of of Joseph of Arimathea with a stone rolled over the entrance and Roman guards posted to stand guard Jesus died And the effect of the cross is a word that we use called atonement, that he atoned for our sin, that he covered us. And so our doctrines of God that we've been going over, how we view creation, how we view all of these things that we have discussed over the past several weeks, our doctrines of God and of Christ will color our understanding of what the atonement is. And the thing is that this is not our first View of the atonement. Again, we see a foreshadowing of it in the Old Testament. We see this foreshadowed, the foreshadowing of the cross through uh, a Jewish event called Yom Kippur. It's the Day of Atonement. This typically happens between October 11th and October 12th in our calendar today. So the book of Leviticus uh, is where we find this. And for the Jewish calendar, this was the most important day of the year. It was intended to deal with the sin problem between humanity and God. And so on this day, what would happen is two goats would be selected. They would bring in the goats, but not just any goats. These had to be two healthy goats without defect. They were to represent sin- sinless perfection, right? And so the first goat was going to be the sin offering. And the high priest would take that goat, kill the goat, which acted as a substitute for ...for the sinners who should and deserve death for their many sins. The priest would then sprinkle some of its blood on the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant... ...inside the most holy place in the tabernacle. And Now, that goat was no longer innocent because it took the guilt of sin. It was a sin offering for the people. And its blood represented life as all blood does. And that life was given as a payment for sin. And then the priest would take the second goat and lay his hand on the animal while confessing the sins of the people. Could you imagine that in America today? (laughs) We'd be there for weeks. We got a lot to confess. Here we go. But he would lay his hands on the goat and confess the sins of the people. This is where we get our term scapegoat from. The goat would then be sent away to run free into the wild, away from the city, away from sinners, symbolically taking our sins far from it. Thus, we see two great symbolic natures of the Old Testament atonement fulfilled in the singular event of the cross. Jesus becoming both our sacrifice And our freedom. Not only does he take away our sin, he dies for it and he removes it so we can experience freedom. Despite all its bloodshed, the Old Testament sacrificial system was never meant to be something sufficient in itself. Israel misunderstood the purpose of it, but their faith in the sacrifices themselves So Christ then becomes the only true sacrifice that we can put our faith in. Look at Hebrews 9, 22. It says, according to the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. We see this again in 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inheriting from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished, spotless lamb. We no longer need to make blood sacrifices because Jesus became our sacrifice for sin. We no longer need a high priest because Jesus is our high priest. We no longer have to visit the temple to draw near to God because Jesus, through his work and the Spirit, make us his temple. We no longer need to live in habitual sin because through Jesus we have been made holy and been given new life. All because of who Christ is. Now here, this is where we will be real brief, there are two main views of the atonement and most of you know it today. Actually three I wrote down. The first one is unlimited or universal atonement. This is often referred to as Arminianism. This was named after James Arminius. This, this view is also held by Wesleyans. Uh, you may see this also in Methodist churches today. To the far left, this would be universalism. In short, Arminians took to Scripture that speak of Jesus dying for all the people, the whole world, everyone, not wanting anyone to perish. Arminians then teach that to be saved, one must make the decision to accept Jesus' atoning death and become a follower of Jesus. So anyone can make the choice either by free will or by God's universal enabling. Something called his first grace. Election then is understood as God choosing those he foreknew would choose him. And within this mindset, and certainly this isn't the case for all who align with Arminianism, you can lose your salvation If you can choose to be saved, then you can also choose not to be saved. And this could lead to a very works-based religion instead of a personal faith. So we have unlimited or universal atonement. Then we have limited atonement. This view is often referred to as Calvinism, named after John Calvin, normally referred to as Reformed theology. Uh, Certain circles also call this view particular redemption. In short, the Calvinist view Uh, Look at scripture that speak of Jesus' as dying for some people, but not all people. He died for his sheep, his church, the elect, his people, his friends, and Christians. They teach that people are so sinful that they cannot choose God, and so God regenerates people before their conversion and ensures that they will be preserved until the end because salvation cannot be lost. It is God who chooses, draws all, redeems all, saves all, secures all, sanctifies all. It is all his work and not any of it our own. So the question begs, did Jesus die on the cross for the sins of all people, opening the way of salvation to all, or did he die to complete the purchase of just our pardon on the cross? Do we accept it at face value when Jesus said it is finished? And so here's the deal. I cannot argue what would be... Cent- I cannot like uh, answer the question of a centuries-old debate. But what I can tell you is I see a biblical reality here, and that's your third point. I believe the Bible teaches both. These, these appear at, at giant extremes. These, these two varied ideas appear to be at odds, but I believe the biblical reality is that they are friends holding hands. And this point is hard, so hopefully I can explain it well. First... These are not mutually exclusive terms. If Jesus died for all, then it also means he died for the elect. Second, Jesus' death for all people does not accomplish the same thing as his death for the elect. Look at 1 Timothy 4.10 where there's a different difference between the two. It says, for this reason we labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God who is Jesus who is the savior of all people, especially those who believe. So we have a saving for all, which is general, but a saving for the elect, which is specific. 2 Peter 2.1 is very much like it. There were indeed false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, and will bring swift destruction on themselves. So we see people already bought by Jesus, but denying the master who bought them. By dying for everyone, Jesus purchased everyone as his possession. He then applies his forgiveness to the elect, those in Christ, by grace, and applies his wrath to those who are not, those who reject Jesus. So meaning this, simply, simply as I can. Objectively, Jesus' death was sufficient to save everyone. Object, sorry, objectively, Jesus' death was sufficient to save everyone. Subjectively, Jesus' death was sufficient to save those who repent of their sins and trust him. This particular view was what John Calvin believed and wrote about, and it's different than the Calvinism that we see today. But all of that aside, let's talk about the heart of the cross. Because it is at the heart of the cross where justice and mercy meet. Love and justice were the ultimate cause of the work of the cross. Without the love of God, he would have never taken any steps to redeem us, yet without the justice of God, the requirement that Christ should die for our sins would never have been met. Both love and justice of the cross are fully displayed. But here's the thing that still to this day confuses me. When people ask, who was it that put Jesus on the cross? Ultimately, completely, yes, our sins But also look at what Hebrews 12, 2 says, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was laid before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Ultimately, Jesus puts himself in that position for his joy to redeem you. God does not merely feel loving towards us. His love actually compels him to act on our behalf so that we can be changed by his love. A, a wonderful book, it's a deep dive, but I encourage you to pick it up, is a book called The Cross of Christ by John Stott. He says, if death threatens to cut a person's life short, a sense of frustration plunges him or her into gloom, but not for Jesus, for the simple reason. He did not regard the death he was about to die as bringing his mission to an untimely end, but has actually necess- was actually necess- necessary to accomplish it. Jesus was not looking back at a mission he had completed. He was looking forward to a mission which he was about to fulfill. Meaning, how could anyone imagine that Christianity is just about sin rather than looking at the reality of forgiveness for sin? How could anyone look at the cross and see only the shame of what we did to Christ rather than see the glory of what he did for us? See, the prodigal son had to come to himself, acknowledge his sin before he can come to the Father. A guilty conscience is a great blessing, but if it only drives us Further away it doesn't do anything, but it must drive us to come home. We cannot sin our way out of his tender care. We must run to him, embracing his forgiveness. But ultimately, the cross is scandalous because it messes with our sense of justice. This is summed up quite beautifully in this video I want to show you by Dr. Alistair Big. Go ahead and play that for us.
1: Without the preaching of the cross, without preaching the cross to ourselves all day and every day, we will very, very quickly revert to faith plus works as the ground of our salvation. So that to go to the old uh, Fort Lauderdale question, if you were to die tonight and, and, and you were getting entry into heaven, what would you say? If you answer that and if I answer it in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I, because I believed, because I have faith, because I am this, because I am continuing. Loved ones, the only proper answer is in the third person, because he, because he. Think about the thief on the cross. And what an immense I can't I, I can't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because you were you were you were you, were, you were cussing the guy out with your friend, you'd never been in a Bible study, you never got baptized, you never you didn't know a thing about church membership, and, and yet and yet you made it. You made it! How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said, you know, like, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know. What, <laughs> what do you mean you don't know? Well, because like, I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, we, uh, uh, did you... <laughs> excuse me, let me get my supervisor. They go get the supervisor, Ranger. So, so we have just a few questions for you, first of all. Are you, are you, are you, are you, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? <laughs> the guy said, I've never heard of it in my life. And and what about, uh, let's just go to the doctrine of Scripture immediately. This guy's just staring. And eventually, in frustration, he says, on, on what basis are you here? And he said, the man on the middle cross said, I can come. <laughs> now, now, that's the... THAT IS THE ONLY ANSWER. THAT IS THE ONLY ANSWER. AND IF I DON'T PREACH THE GOSPEL TO MYSELF ALL DAY AND EVERY DAY, THEN I WILL FIND MYSELF BEGINNING TO TRUST MYSELF, TRUST MY EXPERIENCE, WHICH IS PART OF MY FALLENNESS AS A MAN. IF I TAKE MY EYES OFF THE CROSS, I CAN THEN GIVE ONLY LIP SERVICE TO ITS EFFICACY, WHILE AT THE SAME TIME LIVING AS IF MY SALVATION depends upon me. And as soon as you go there, it will lead you either to abject despair or a horrible kind of arrogance. And it is only the cross of Christ that deals both with the dreadful depths of despair and the pretentious arrogance of the pride of man that says, you know, I can figure this out and I'm doing wonderfully well. No, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the justice satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's why Luther said most of your Christian life is outside of you in this sense. That we know that we're not saved by good works, we're not saved as a result
0: of our professions,
1: but we're saved as a result of what Christ has achieved.
0: If we do not get the cross right, then everything else is wrong. We deserve to die as the penalty for sin. We deserve to bear God's wrath against us. We are separated from God by our sins. We are in bondage to sin and the kingdom of Satan, but the cross... Through his sacrifice, he paid the penalty of our sin. He is the propitiation of our sin and removes the wrath of God from me and from you. He reconciles us to God to overcome the separation between us and God, and he provides redemption from the bondage of sin and ushers into his kingdom with loving arms all because of the cross. I want to challenge you today as we close if this is information that you're like, today I want to repent of my sin, I realize the necessity of the cross that I cannot Earn salvation by my own merit, but because of the man of the cross, there is redemption and freedom for me today if I just put my faith and trust in him and him alone. He is my sacrifice. He is my salvation. Because of his mercy and his love, I no longer have to do this on my own. If that is you today, join us in next step. Help us to pray with you, and rejoice with you for embracing the only sacrifice that is truly real. Or maybe you're someone in here that you know this and you believe it, but like Dr. Biggs said, we have been living a lie and relying on our own works, and we are no longer preaching the cross to ourselves daily, and we are stuck in our sin instead of hating it. God, help us to hate our sins so that we can love you more. So if that's you, come and pray with us. Talk with us so we can give you counsel and point you to the one true God who gives you all peace and understanding. Or maybe you just, you've been holding back on baptism. You know, today is the day to make this proclamation that I believe in this work. Whatever that might be, come. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the cross. In your name, Amen. We invite you to join us in person at our campus located at 3100 East Grand Avenue in Hot Springs, Arkansas. If we can pray for you, send us an email at prayer@crossgate.org. Thanks again for listening to our audio podcast.